0: After God had ransomed his people out of slavery in Egypt, accepting the blood of an innocent substitute in their place that he might spare their lives, he called them out to Mount Sinai. That's Exodus 19. He called the man Moses up on that mountain and he met with him there, entering into a covenant, an agreement between God and Israel. Now these people were already his chosen folks by calling Abraham out of the Chaldees he had already promised that man that he would be his God that he would make this man into a great nation that from this man all the nations of the world would be blessed and God had proven his faithfulness as he responded to the cry of these weak and sinful people as they had cried out to God in slavery and he showed up showing himself to be mighty on their behalf and then calling them out to himself that they would be able to come and worship him there in the wilderness So now, God, as he called this man Moses upon this mountain, he gave him a law, expressed to them the way in which these people were to relate to each other and all the nations that were around them, the way in which they were to represent him and his holiness to the world that was watching on. So he entered into this agreement, the way that they would uphold this covenant, the way that they would receive this blessing that God had for them. If they would follow after this law, God made these promises. Number one, that they would be his prized possession amongst all the earth. That he would be their God and they would be his people number two that they would be a holy nation a kingdom full of priests That these people they would have intimate access to God again that they would represent him and his holiness to all the rest of the world if these people would uphold this covenant then they among all people they would find him to be a gracious and merciful King they would find him to be quick to forgive slow to anger willing to extend mercy even in the face of their sin Now, the condition for receiving these promises, the condition for upholding these covenants, it was not sinless perfection. The standard was not based on these people's performance at all. In fact, it was based on faith. It was based on trust. This was a covenant of grace. God's grace poured out upon those people that he loved, those people that he had saved, and those people that in return loved him. The condition for upholding this covenant, it was not outward performance. It was inward affection. If you love me. You will keep my commandments that was always god's standard those weren't just the words of jesus christ in his day that was always god's standard that if you have a heart that truly delights in god you have a heart that truly cherishes him you have a heart which truly longs to relation to be in a relationship with him then you will not long after other idols you won't chase after the ways of this world obedience will simply flow out of all that you are and it's the major centerpiece to this covenant the major centerpiece to this agreement between God and his covenant people called Israel, we find a tabernacle, a place where God's p- presence would dwell. Now, Of course, there's nowhere in all the universe that you can go to escape the presence of God, but there was going to be something special about this place. This was going to be the place where God's presence was most fully known, was most fully realized by these people, that he would come in tabernacle. He would come and dwell amongst them, a special place, a place of worship, a place of sacrifice. A place where God's people would present themselves before him. A place where they would come seeking forgiveness and receive assurance that he was still their God, and they were still his people. And so Moses, as he meets with God in this way, he comes down from the mountain, his face glowing from the radiant glory of God. He presents to the people everything that God has said, and they all agreed, all that God has said, we shall do. The remainder of the book of Exodus is dedicated to the building of this tabernacle and the instruments that would be found there. We read about the building of the tent, the courtyard, the laver, the lampstands, all the instruments that would be used there in this temple. And then as the Holy of Holies is constructed, and then the ark. And then the ark, it is brought into this place. And then we read this. After Moses has completed his work, Exodus 40, verse 34, then a cloud covered the tent of the meeting. That is the presence of God. It covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord The visible manifestation of his infinite worth, his infinite value, his unending majesty. It so filled this place, this tabernacle, this place where God chose to dwell with this people, not because they were the greatest, not because they were the best, not because they were the most faithful, but because God is a God who chooses. He would dwell in his glory in this place, in this tent. Some 480 years later, after the people had taken hold of the promised land, there was relative peace in Israel and the nation... It was united. God would allow King Solomon, the son of David, he would allow him to build a temple. A place that would replicate and replace that tabernacle. A place where God would now dwell with his people there in Israel. Upon a mountain, Mount Moriah. There was a place there which David had purchased. And now his son came and he built this magnificent structure. Again, all the instruments that would be there, just just a magnificent temple to the Lord. And then again, the ark is brought in. It's placed within this new holy of holies. Solomon offers up a prayer dedication, and then we read Second Chronicles seven one through two. Fire came down from heaven, and it consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. Again, the glory of the Lord, the visible manifestation, proof not only of His presence but of His unending, infinite worth. It so filled this place where God would dwell with His people that no one else could even enter in. We know, of course, about the curtain that would then stand between man and God's glory. Because if any man were to enter into the glory of God, he would be struck dead. It was only once a year when the high priest could enter in offering a sacrifice on behalf of the people. The glory of the Lord was found in that place. It would remain there on Mount Moriah for nearly 400 years, despite the people's faithlessness. Despite the fact that they would not uphold the covenant, despite the fact that they lusted after foreign women, despite the fact that they offered sacrifices to idols, to gods who were not gods, despite the fact that they showed that they despised this God who had loved them so deeply, God would continue to stay in that place, his glory manifest in that place, and yet he would continue to warn them. He would continue to speak to them through the prophets. He would say, yes, I am a God of steadfast love. I am a God of abounding grace. I am a God who will continue to dwell with you, you sinful, adulterous people. And yet, I will not allow my name to be blasphemed among the nations forever. See, God was raising up a people called Babylon. Babylon was closing in upon Israel. They were going to conquer. They were going to capture. They were going to destroy not only Jerusalem but this temple. God warned the people of this and yet they would not repent. They would not turn away from their ways. They believed falsely that somehow they were safe. They continued to recite to each other, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They believed that they could hide behind the glory of God. They believed because they were the people of the law, because they were the people that had the temple, because God had chosen to dwell there that there was no way he could allow this horrible thing to happen. There was no way that they could fall. There was no way Jerusalem could fall because God's glory was trapped there in that place. And yet God continued to warn them that this was not the case. Then we find a prophet named Ezekiel. He'd already been taken away into Babylon. He was sitting there by the Chabar River. And God granted this man a vision of his glory. A terrifying and bizarre scene. The glory of God, not only in the way in which it was manifest before him, but in the reality that the glory of God was no longer trapped there in the Holy of Holies. It, in fact, you could not trap God's glory in any one place. For those that have ears to hear and eyes to see, this is a glorious revelation. The revelation that God is not confined to any one space, but that he could come even with his people into exile. His glory could come even then to them in their suffering and in their sorrow. And yet, for the rest, for those that believed that they had God's glory trapped, for those who believe that they were safe in their sin because they were God's chosen people, this was horrific news. And what we see there, not only is God's glory manifest before Ezekiel's eyes, we see that it has in fact left the temple. We read this in Ezekiel 11, 22 through 23. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of God Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is to the east side of the city They see he watches on as the glory of God not only leaves the Holy of Holies not only leaves the temple not only leaves Jerusalem but goes up and over the mountain to the east side of the city Jerusalem would fall exactly as God has said Jerusalem would fall because God's presence belongs to no man while he was in fact their God and they were in fact his people God's presence is not trapped his glory is not owned by any man or any people if you love me you will obey my commandments These people had proven they did not love God and they did not obey his commandments. They were not faithful. They had not upheld his covenant. And so now judgment came. God had vacated his seat there in the Holy of Holies and allowed this place, this glorious place where God had dwelled with his people, he allowed it to fall. But just as God had promised, he would return a small faithful remnant to this place just as god had promised this small faithful remnant they came back and they were allowed to rebuild a temple right back there on that same spot you remember this we studied it for month after month after month in the days of ezra and nehemiah and zerubbabel as they completed this temple they dedicated this temple they offered up sacrifices they offered a prayer to god and yet the glory of god was not manifest in the same way sometime later as king herod came along improving upon and expanding this very same temple They offered all all the same prayers, all the same sacrifices, all the same offerings, and yet the glory of God was not shown in that place in the same way. Because, dear friends, the glory of God had left. The glory of God had exited the temple. It had exited Jerusalem. It had gone to the mountain to the east, that mountain which is called Olivet. In this morning's text, you will find that the glory of God has returned to the Mount of Olives. It does not look like it once did. It is the glory of God veiled in human flesh. It is the glory of God coming in from the east into the temple, into this city, into this once called city of peace where God had said that he would dwell with his people and where God had said that he would return. So I ask you to stand to your feet, please. Reverence, the reading of God's word. We return to Matthew, excuse me, Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus said to two of his disciples, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them that Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread their leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And they entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, so you'll recall that Jesus and his followers, they have crossed the Jordan River probably by rafts because the waters would have been high in springtime, they came to a town called Jericho. You remember that we spoke about two specific men that were there amongst that crowd in Jericho. There was a rich young tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus, and then there was a blind beggar by the name of Bartimaeus. And these men could not have been in any different stations of life if they tried. Now, there was some great similarities. They were both outsiders and outcasts. You had this tax collector. He would have been despised by all men because he made his wealth by ripping off his countrymen. By serving the Romans and stealing from his very own people. This blind man named Bartimaeus. Everyone would have assumed that he was blind because of some sin on his part or a sin on the behalf of his parents. So they were both outsiders. And yet, this rich man, he was merely curious. You see, this man, he thought he had the world by the tail. He had made his decision. He had chosen wealth over popularity. He had chosen wealth over religion. And yet, when he heard that Jesus Christ was coming by, he decided he would climb up in a sycamore tree just to catch a glimpse. He didn't need anything from Jesus. What could he possibly need? He was rich. This other man named Bartimaeus, he wasn't just curious. He was desperate. He knew that he had great need. He knew that he had this one opportunity to interact with the Messiah, the Christ, the one that was restoring sight to the blind. And so while Zacchaeus merely looked on in curiosity, it was this man named Bartimaeus who cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The crowds told him to be quiet, and he would not. He knew that this was his only shot. He didn't care what the people thought of him. He wasn't worried about popularity either in that moment. He continued to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And dear friends, you must understand that despite the two drastically different stations in life of these two men, despite their drastically different approaches and the reason why they came to see Jesus Christ, the end was the same. They both heard that glorious call as Jesus Christ called out to him, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I'm coming to your house. We called out to blind Bartimaeus, get up, cheer up, he's calling you. Both of these men, both of these men with desperate need, one of them having no clue that he needed anything in all the, all the earth. The other man knowing very well exactly what he needed, and yet in the end, because of their encounter with Jesus Christ, they were radically transformed. No longer curious onlookers, no longer desperate beggars, but men marching along the road with Jesus Christ, singing songs of praise as others glorified him. As others glorified God because of what they had seen done in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And so we read that the group continued on in their journey. So about 18 miles southwest of Jericho, they would have come to that mountain. The mountain called Olivet, the Mount of Olives. Actually, what we've got here is the middle peak. There are three peaks in a mountain ridge. It's about two miles long, and it runs north to south on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. And I need you to see this. You're probably wondering what in the world I was talking about in my introduction, right? Did you think I'd lost my place? I said, I'm all the way back in the Old Testament. I'm talking through this covenant. I'm talking through the glory of God. And I'm talking about his dwelling place, his tabernacling with the people. It was because of this. You need to understand that this mountain, this place called Olivet, it is going to serve as a very important character in the days to come. This is a critical spot in God's redemptive plan, this mount called Olivet. So I need you to picture this in your mind. This serves as almost a border on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. Separating the city from the Judean wilderness is this ridge. And the middle mountain upon this ridge is Mount of Olives. Now this place it had served is an important spot in a number of events in the Old Testament. You remember that as King David was chased out of Jerusalem by his son Absalom. That he went up out the east over this mountain weeping with his head down low and his head covered up. You remember that his son Solomon offered up offered up sacrifices to the false god called Molech on this very same mountain. You remember, as I just told you, that the glory of God had exited Israel. It had exited the temple. It had exited Jerusalem. It had gone up over this very same mountain, this mount called Olives. Now, if you were to walk out of Jerusalem today, if you were to go out the eastern gate, you can't, by the way, because it's buried underground, at least the ancient eastern gate. But if you were to go out of ancient Jerusalem and you were to go out that eastern gate, you would immediately come to the Kidron Valley. You would stoop down through the Kidron Valley, come up the other side, and you would find yourself seated or standing at the base of the Mount of Olives. This mountain had served for more than 3,000 years. It has served as a Jewish cemetery. You'll find more than 150,000 graves there. It is a sight to behold. you stand upon this Mount of Olives, and you see just tomb after tomb after tomb of Jewish men that have gone before, ancient tombs that are there. In addition to that, as the name would indicate, it's a place full of just magnificent olive trees. The Mount of Olives. So you'll find as we come through the weeks to come, as we continue to study through this word together, what you will find is at the base, at the foot of the Mount of Olives, there's a garden called Gethsemane. That is the place where Jesus would go and pray on the night of his betrayal. You'll find in Acts 1 that Jesus would take his uh, uh, apostles up there upon that mountain, and it is from there, the Mount of Olives, where Jesus would ascend back into heaven. And then if you read the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah 14, what you will find is when that glorious day comes and that final trumpet sounds, that Jesus Christ will return to that very same mountain. And as his feet strike that mountain, it will split in two from north to south. Dear friends, I cannot overstate to you the importance of Mount of Olives. In the weeks to come, in the days to come, and in our months to come, as we continue to study through this word, you're going to see it playing almost as another character in this story. This mountain is going to be very critical. On the backside of this mountain, what you'll find is a small town called Bethany. Bethany is the home to Jesus' friends, about two miles away from Jerusalem. It's the home to Jesus' dear friends, Mary and Martha, along with their brother, the man who Jesus loved, the one he raised from the dead, called Lazarus. Just days before this morning's text, Jesus, in fact, had been there. The man had been dead, stinky dead, for days on end, and Jesus called him back to life. He walked right out of his tomb. Of course, word had traveled fast about this in the Sanhedrin. The Jewish Supreme Court they had found out what Jesus had done and yet again they determined he could not live they must take his life not only this but this man called Lazarus this walking talking miracle they couldn't allow him to continue to go around and tell his story this man had intimate knowledge of Jesus power even over death so they determined that both Jesus and this ordinary man he must die and so John tells us at the end of chapter 11 the beginning of chapter 12 he tells us now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone saw where Jesus was, they should let him know so that they might arrest him. This was six days before the Passover. And Jesus, therefore, he came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. What you'll find is that each night between now and Jesus arrest that he will exit out Jerusalem to the east. He will go up the Mount of Olives and he will go to the town of Bethany. What John tells us here is that this first arrival, it was six days before the Passover. That would have been Saturday the eighth day of the month of Nisan in the year A.D. 30, as best I can tell. We know that on that day, Mary took an expensive uh, jar of perfume. It was pure nard, and and she pours it out upon Jesus' feet and wipes it in with even her hair. Unbeknownst to her, she was anointing Jesus for his burial. Judas, of course, is upset. He speaks up and says, why did you do such a wasteful thing? We could have taken that and sold it and given the money to the poor. We, of course, now know that Judas, being the thief, it was his desire that he could get his hands on some of this money. This was the town called Bethany on the backside of the Mount of Olives. Somewhere close by to Bethany, we don't know exactly exactly where and we don't know nearly as much about this town, but it was the town of Bethpage. Somewhere nearby was this town and what we read is that the very next day, this would have been Sunday, the 9th of Nisan, at least that's as best I can understand it. There's other people that would disagree with me. There's some people that say it was actually two days later. That it was the 10th of Nisan, which was Monday. They will tell you that it's actually Palm Monday and not Palm Sunday. I'm not going to get into a fist fight with you about this. I believe it was Palm Sunday, the 9th of Nisan. The advantage to believing that it was Palm Monday, I'll tell you why they get there, is because on the 10th day of Nisan, that's when everyone selected their Passover lamb. And so they see Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as his presentation as the true lamb of God that's come to take away the sins of the world. I won't get into a disagreement with you about this. I like Palm Sunday. I'm sticking with Palm Sunday. You do you. I'll be me. But... So on this day, either the next day, Palm Sunday, or the day after that, Palm Monday, Jesus sends two of his disciples home to this town, to the village. He says, go into the village in front of you. Again, they're in Bethany. They're looking ahead to Bethphage, and he's saying, go into that village. Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Very specific instructions. There's the town. Go in. You'll find this colt. Untie it. Bring it to me. Now, a colt, of course, is a young male, uncut horse or a donkey. Matthew tells us that the donkey, the mother to this colt, was actually there with her. And that Jesus said to bring them both. This is presumably because the colt would follow along if his mommy was with him. This was going to make the travel easier. It was going to make it easier to lead this colt. Now, the colt may have been willing to come, but what about the owners? People don't just let you ride into town as a bunch of donkey bandits and steal their donkeys. So what was going to happen when they showed up? Well, Jesus handles that. He says, when somebody asks you, What are you doing? you tell them, if anyone says, Why are you doing this? you say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Now, folks have all kind of theories about what's going on here. There's some folks that they will tell you that what happened was that Jesus must have surely made arrangements for this transaction during some previous visit into Bethphage. They say that Jesus had followers there and that he had already come and met with them and he had told them, Look on the week of my final Passover the first day I'm going to send my disciples in. they're gonna come and they're gonna have need of a young colt and his mother the donkey I'd like you to have it tied up and ready to go so that when they come so when they hear the Lord has need of it they view that as some kind of a passcode like a secret word so you will know when the dudes come they're not just ordinary donkey thieves when they come and they say the Lord has need of it that's the password you can let the donkey go with them and this very well may be the case As a matter of fact, I preached a sermon last Palm Sunday. I preached out of Luke's Parallel on this, and that was what I believed back then, and I've changed my mind. But it could work. It absolutely could work, because what happens is, if you were to read the Gospel of Mark just in isolation, if you were to read the Gospel of Mark in isolation with no access to any of the other Gospel stories, you might come to believe that Jesus' earthly ministry lasted just one year. And you might come to believe that this was his very first visit to Jerusalem during his earthly ministry, that this is the week of his crucifixion. Because Mark chose to focus so much on Jesus' ministry in and around Galilee. But this is why we praise God, that we have not just one, not just two, but four gospel accounts. You probably don't remember this, but when we first started studying Mark's gospel, what I told you was that we need to pay attention to the Passovers. That it's by the annual Passovers that we can mark, we can put these time markers on Jesus' earthly ministry. It's by these Passovers that we know that his, past, that his earthly ministry lasted about three years. And John's gospel is the one that tells us about so many of these. And we know Based on John's Gospel and other accounts, we know that this was not, in fact, Jesus' first trip during his earthly ministry to Jerusalem, that he was faithful in coming for the necessary feasts. And so it's very possible that Jesus, we know he spent time in Bethany, we know he was dear friends with Mary and Martha, so it's altogether um, understandable that perhaps he could have gone into Bethphage and arranged this, but again, I don't think that's it. I think what Jesus is doing is he is intentionally showing us, yet again, his absolute omniscience. He's showing us an awareness of all things. He's showing us that he knew that there would be a set of believers within this town, that those believers owned a colt and her donkey, and that those believers would tie up their donkey outside their door, and that those believers would be willing, that they knew who the Lord was, and when they heard that the Lord had use of of their colt and their donkey, that they would be thrilled, they would be honored to allow this donkey, this colt, to be used in service to the king. But again, this is far from a primary issue. I won't fist fight you for for it. I'd have to go back a year and fist fight myself, because that's exactly what I preached when we were going through Luke. So... The the reality is, though, that the colt was there. Jesus knew that the colt was there, all exactly as he had directed. He knew that the colt would be there, and he knew that as soon as they heard the word, the Lord has need of it, that they would release it, and it would come to him. So Jesus, he sends the men men ahead to secure the colt, the colt of a donkey, one that's never been sat upon. Why? Surely there's some significance here. Jesus was a fit enough, young enough, healthy enough young man. He could have marched into Jerusalem just like all the other Passover pilgrims. We never read about him riding on a donkey or any other animal previous to this. So surely there was some significance about why Jesus would call this colt. And Matthew tells us why. He says that this took place to fulfill what is written by the prophet. That's the prophet Zechariah. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Daughter of Zion, that is Israel. Your king is coming to you. Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy. Now you need to understand, Jesus Christ literally fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. And many of those prophecies that he fulfilled, he fulfilled in the passive sense. Now, of course, the Son of God, he is sovereign over all things. He is controlling over all things. But Jesus Christ in his humanity. He was not actively fulfilling a number of these prophecies. Like the fact that he would be born in Bethlehem, he had no control over that. Like the fact that he would flee to Egypt as an infant from Herod, he had no control over that. Like the fact that his bones would not be broken after his death, he had no control over that. Not in his humanity at least. And yet what we see here is him pressing the issue. Him actively, purposefully fulfilling prophecy. Not just any prophecy, but prophecy that pointed to his sovereignty as absolute king. This is truly a remarkable thing. John tells us that Jesus' disciples, they wouldn't understand all this until after Jesus had come into his glory. They wouldn't understand this in the moment, and surely they stood on this day absolutely bewildered and perplexed because Jesus had worked so hard to keep exactly this kind of thing under wraps. All throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he was calling people to silence whenever they recognized who he was. You think about the demons that he would confront, and they would cry out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? We know that you are son of the most high. And he would tell them shut your mouth the leopard that he would clean that he would he would cleanse the leper of course was on fire ready to go tell everybody about this jesus christ and he commanded that man to be silent when peter confessed that jesus was the christ he sternly warned him not to tell anyone it's called the messianic secret all throughout jesus earthly ministry he was telling people to be quiet and we know why we've talked about this at great length number one it's because the people did not understand the messiah they had no understanding of why jesus had come what he was going to accomplish, and what it truly meant for the Messiah, the Christ of God, to be there with them. In addition to that, he knew that the religious leaders, they were seeking to take his life. And he knew that any talk, any escalation that he was the king of the Jews, that was only going to speed this process along. And Jesus Christ would not lay down his life one second sooner than the appointed time. It wasn't going to be until the Passover that Jesus was going to lay down his life. And so he had purposely kept this thing under wraps calling any within the Jewish territory to keep their mouths quiet about this thing that they had recognized in Jesus being the Christ. And yet here he was in the most Jewish of towns, on the most Jewish of days, doing the most Jewish of things to make clear that he was the king. It was time for him to press the issue. He was taking these steps. And that's what this was, a formal announcement. Seated upon a colt that no one had ever ridden upon. This was a kingly thing. No one was allowed to ride upon the king's animals. So he was selecting for himself a colt that nobody had ridden on. It's a Jewish establishment that had gone back for years. People would have understood when he said, no, don't just get me any donkey. Don't just get me any colt. Get me one that no one has ever sat upon. They would have known that this was a sign. This was a sign of his majesty. In addition to this, the fact that he was riding in on a donkey, this was a regal animal. We know in Genesis 49. As Jacob is speaking to his children. He's talking to Judah and he's saying from you the one that the scepter will never pass from that they will see you riding in on the colt of a donkey. We know about King Solomon after his coronation that he comes riding in on his father's mule. You see horses were war animals. Horses were were animals of pride. They're animals of human power. They were boasting animals. You rode in after great victories upon a horse and yet a donkey. A donkey was a picture of humility. A donkey was a picture of peace. And so what Jesus Christ was doing, he wasn't just announcing that I am the king. He announced that I am the king and I come to offer peace. I come not to bring war but peace. Verse 4, and they went away and found a colt tied to a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? I'm tying this colt. And they told him that Jesus had said and they let them go. Again, you see God's absolute perfect sovereignty over everything these men go into this town exactly as jesus had said they find the donkey exactly as jesus had said they're confronted by men exactly as jesus had said they respond to the men exactly as jesus had said and they let the animals go exactly as jesus had said every single second of every single moment of every single step of this week is going to be under the sovereign control of the almighty god as he is moving all of creation towards that moment when jesus christ would lay down his life for the sake of sinners and so of course, they answered, the Lord has need of it, and they let them go, verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. The cloak didn't even have, the, the colt, of course, didn't have, a, didn't have a saddle on it. Jesus didn't even own a saddle. This king of the universe having to use a borrowed donkey, not even owning a saddle of his own to put upon it. So they makeshift one out of some cloaks. They lay it on the back of the donkey, and then he rides upon his back. Again, the first time that we see Jesus riding on an animal of any sort, he was a healthy enough man. He walked everywhere that he went and yet this day was different this was so critical for everything that lay ahead you've got to know that apart from the feeding of the five thousand this is the first instance where we see all four gospel writers talking about the same moment you need to understand how this sets the stage for everything that comes forward i understand that this is not the most fun of sermons i understand that this feels like a school lecture but you've got to understand that when we come to mark's gospel what you're going to find is that all that we have read before, that accounts for about 60% of his gospel. This final week of Jesus Christ's life, it is almost 40% of Mark's gospel. That is how critical this week is. And this is the, the day that sets the stage. This is the moment where Jesus presses the issue. This is critical for understanding everything that comes after this. But I thank you for bearing with me, but I need you to understand, this is magnificent, this is glorious, this is critical stuff that's happening on that mountain, on that mountain called Olivet, as Jesus takes this donkey to himself and he rides in. Announcing to the world that he is in fact the king. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the field. So John tells us that the branches were palm branches, and of course where we get our idea of Palm Sunday. And it was a show of of joy over salvation. We'll read in Revelation 7-9 that, around the throne as Jesus is there and he has secured victory, that all the people are singing songs of praise and even they are waving palm branches. You'll know that some hundred years before this, the Maccabees, you've heard of the Maccabees, there was a man named Simon Maccabee and he had chased the Syrians out of the temple. He had freed Jerusalem from Syrian oppression. And so as a show of celebration, as he came riding in, the people were waving palm branches. Some money in that day, it was stamped with palm branches as a sign of victory, as a sign of joy, as a sign of celebration over salvation that had come. In addition to this, these people were taking the things, the cloaks off their backs and they were laying them down on the road. This was a show of submission. We submit to your authority. This was a sign, almost as if the people are laying down saying, you may step over us. You die if a donkey steps on you, I reckon. And so instead of laying down in the road themselves, they take the cloaks off their back and they lay it down. They're saying, we submit to you. You are our king. You are our sovereign. You are our ruler. You are our master. And so we take even the coats off our back and we lay them on the ground so that your donkey can walk across it. This is a show from these people that they were worshiping. They were celebrating. They were submitting to Jesus Christ as king. And at the same time, they had absolutely no clue what they were doing. They had no clue what they were doing because they had no clue who the Messiah was and they had no clue what his mission was. They had no understanding of what this king had come to bring. Verse 9, and those that went before and those who came after were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna, in the highest. So Luke tells us that they've already reached the peak of the mountain, and they're coming down the other side. And I'm telling you guys, if God ever gives you the opportunity, you must go and you must stand upon this mountain. It is incredible. As you stand upon the Mount of Olives and you look, and all of Jerusalem is laid out before you. And you see the temple mount, and you see where David's palace was. And I've just got to imagine in that day, this place was buzzing with hundreds of thousands of pilgrims coming into Jerusalem for the Passover and in addition to that there was this buzz in the air that perhaps the Messiah this Jesus Christ could be the Messiah the one sent from heaven the one to come and set us free it's an anticipation of all of this as Jesus and this throng of people come over this mountain and they're looking down upon the city of peace they're looking down upon Jerusalem they're looking down upon this city which God has chosen this place in which his glory had dwelled they come over this mountain they're looking down upon this this is what he sees in this moment. But who are these people? Who are these people that are surrounding Jesus? Because it says the people that were going before and the people that are coming behind and the people that were pressing in on sides. I imagine it was hard to spot Jesus. That's why Zacchaeus climbed the tree, right? It was hard to see Jesus in this mass of people. But who were the people? Was this just a group of people that had followed Jesus out of Galilee? Was it just the people that he had picked up in Perea? Was it just the people that had come along and started following him in Jericho? We've got to imagine he was adding people we know that he was adding people to this entourage as he continued to move in this track into jerusalem so there's people that they will tell us that yes that's it it's whoever jesus crossed the jordan river with whoever he came out of jericho with those are the only people that were with jesus on this day That while there were people in Jerusalem that were excited about the anticipation that the Messiah may have come, while everyone was talking about Jesus, that nobody from Jerusalem had come out to meet him. And so because of this, what they say is that the group that was with Jesus on this day, singing Hosanna, praises to God, they would not be the ones that were calling for his death on that day. They would not be the ones yelling out, crucify him. That these were two very separate crowds. But I don't think this can be right. If we look in John's gospel, John 12, 12 through 13, he says this. The next day, a large crowd had come to the feast. They heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him. Seems to me these were people that were already in Jerusalem. They heard that Jesus was coming, so they took palm branches, and they ran out there to meet him. John seems to confirm this. He goes on in verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are amounting to nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The whole world had gone after Jesus. The people from Galilee were going after Jesus. The people from Perea were going after Jesus. The people from Jericho were going after Jesus. The people that had come into Jerusalem for the Passover, they were all coming out to see this Jesus. All of them for different reasons. Some of them just wanted to see a miracle. Some of them wanting to test and tempt Jesus. Some of them hoping that he would fail. Some of them true worshipers. And yet in the end, this crowd will be the very same one calling for his death just days later. Because the hearts of men, particularly the hearts of fickle men, or or unregenerate men, are very, very fickle. We're quick to turn away when Jesus doesn't meet up to our expectations. We're quick to turn away when he doesn't fit into our own paradigms. This is the very same crowd that would be calling for his crucifixion. But on this day, they cried out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father David. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. Originally, it's a plea for help. Hosanna, save us now. Deliver us now. There's perhaps no greater call in all the world. This would at first appear to be like blind Bartimaeus crying out from the side of the road Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. This would seem to be the very same call as they cry out, Hosanna. In Hebrew, it's Hoshianna. It's translated as Greek as Hosanna. And it's translated into English as Hosanna. We didn't get very original with that. And we just stuck with it, right? Hosanna. It's save us now. We plead. Save us. Deliver us. Bring us salvation. But we know that they had more in mind than that because they would continue on. They would continue on reading from Psalm 18, excuse me, 118. This was part of the Hallel. You remember, every time we talk about the Lord's Supper, we talk about the Passover, we talk about how the Jewish families, they would have gathered together and they would have sung the Hallel, Psalm 113 through 118, remembering God's deliverance. As he called the people out of Egypt and looking forward to his ultimate deliverance. But as they cry out, not only save us, Lord, but blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see the sense of assurance that the salvation has come. Those of you that join with us on Wednesday nights as we read through the Psalms, you'll notice that King David has this absolute assurance of God's salvation. That within the very same breath, the very same psalm, he'll be calling out for salvation He'll be calling out to God to rescue him from his oppressors. And then the very next sentence he'll, be, he'll say, and thanks for doing it. This absolute assurance that God is going to do the thing that he has asked him to do. This very strong assurance that God will be faithful. That he will be the rock of refuge. And so the people, they have this sense. They're not just crying out, God save us. They're saying, God save us and thank you for this one that you have sent to save us. The problem is, they had no idea what he had come to save them from. They believed that they were just like King David. They believed that because of their lineage going back through Father Abraham, that they were among God's people, that they were the ones that were coming to be saved from the evil oppressors called the Romans. So they cried out on this day. They were saying all the right words. They were doing all the right things. They were waving the palm branches. They were laying down their cloaks. They were crying out, salvation comes in this one. They were reciting scripture and songs of prayer, this outward sign of submission. Sounds like a worship service, doesn't it? Singing all the right words reading all the right scripture, holding themselves in all the right posture, and yet you'll notice what they're crying out for is the coming of the kingdom of the father David. They had their eyes fixed on an earthly kingdom. They believed that Jesus was coming to bring a military clash. They anticipated a political uprising. They believed that the problems were out there. They didn't see the reality of the donkey. They didn't see what this represented. They didn't see that he wasn't coming, bringing war, but that he was bringing peace. They didn't understand all of Jesus' predictions that this victory would be won by his rejection, by his persecution, by his trial, by his beating, by his death, and by his resurrection. They had no idea that this was not a coronation. They had no clue that Jesus' coronation would not come until his resurrection and his ascension when he would sit at the right hand of his father, when he would be given a name above every other name, when he would be given a dominion, a kingdom that would never waste away had no concept on this day the way that all of that would come and so they cried out believing that jesus was coming to set them free from the outsiders dear friends they had no idea that on this day jesus christ wasn't coming to receive a crown he was coming to pick a fight this was a provocation coming in the most jewish of ways into the most jewish of towns on the most jewish of holidays coming riding into town on a donkey announcing i am the one those things that blind bartimaeus said about me they're right i am the son of david I am the promised eternal king, and I am riding in to this place. And sure enough, he was pressing the issue. These men, they didn't want to take Jesus' life at the Passover. There was way too many people there. The crowds were too great. They didn't want to take his life on this day. Jesus wasn't going to allow them to back out. He was going to press them into a corner where they had to make a decision. Will we hold on to our reputation? Will we hold on to our power? Will we hold on to our position? Or will we kill Jesus Christ? They couldn't have both. They, they were going to hold on to these things, they were going to have to take his life. They couldn't submit to Jesus Christ as king and hold on to their rights and their name and their position and their power and their reputation. They were going to have to take his life. He pressed the issue. He backed him into the corner, sovereign over all things, moving all creation towards this moment. He would lay down his life at the appointed time. It would all happen exactly as God had predestined. So Luke tells us that at this moment, some Pharisees did come out to meet Jesus, and they told him, you need to tell these people to be quiet. This is blasphemy. You should not be worshiping a man like this. And I have to imagine in the back of Jesus' mind, what he was thinking was, just give them a minute. They're going to be right back on your side calling for my death soon enough. But instead, what does he tell them? If these be quiet, then the rocks would cry out. You people don't even understand the depth of what it means that I am the king. I'm not just the king of Israel. I'm the king of the universe. All things exist for the sake of my glory. All things exist for the sake of my praise. And even if these men were to be silent, these rocks would cry out. And we know that even to this day, those rocks groan. All of creation groans for the return of Jesus Christ in absolute power. When no longer is his glory shielded by a veil of human flesh, when his glory radiates through all the earth, and there is no longer need of a sun, because Jesus Christ is the light. When Jesus returns, all things will be made well. Even to this day, these rocks groan for the returning of Jesus Christ. And so he said, no, I will not tell these men to shut up. So the crowd, they continued to sing. And again, they had no clue. They were too hardened. I talked before about the reality that so many people, they come into a place like this and they sing songs of of worship, and maybe they sing them beautifully, but the reality is it's no different than a three-year-old singing a love song. You don't know what you're talking about. You have no clue who it is that you claim to worship. You're just singing songs. You're just saying the words, but your heart is so far away from me. You pay service to me with your lips. You pay service to me in your posture, but you know nothing about me and you know nothing about my kingdom. That's where so many of these people were. Because deep down in their hearts, what they were really singing was, praise you, Jesus, because you have come to destroy the enemies of God, having no idea that apart from Jesus' sovereign work, they were all enemies of God. They longed for Jesus Christ to come and wipe all evil from the earth because they believed that the Romans were evil. They believed that outsiders were evil. They believed that all their problems were out there, and so they longed for Jesus Christ to come and deal with them, having no idea that there was not a one of them that was righteous, no, not one. Having no idea that every single one of them was an enemy of God. Not a single one of them had been reconciled with God until Jesus did this thing that he had come to do. These fools, they believed that because their lineage pointed back to Father Abraham, because they had their traditions and their ordinances and their own man-made laws, they believed that surely they were right with God. So again, they, came, they cl- cried out to Jesus, expecting him to wipe out the Romans, to wipe out the outsiders. And yet Jesus had been warning them over and over and over again, the problem isn't them, the problem isn't, is you. The problem isn't out there, the problem is in your heart. You must understand that unless I do this supernatural thing, unless I reconcile you to God by the pouring out of my blood, unless I cleanse you from the inside out, you will find that if I come and I wipe this world of all evil, there will not be a one of you left. You are the evil ones. They had no idea. So that when Jesus Christ came offering peace, they didn't want peace, they wanted war, but they had no idea what team they were on. They wanted Jesus Christ to come and wipe out the enemies of God, and they had no idea where they stood. So surely there were some true worshipers in that group. Surely there were some that God had given eyes of faith and ears of faith and they had seen the glory of Jesus Christ. Even some that hadn't been upon that mountain with him. Even some that hadn't been there when he pulled back the veil to his flesh. There were some that were in a position like us. We don't see the visible glory of God in this place. And yet, as we behold the face of his son, Jesus Christ, as we look upon the face of Jesus Christ and we see the radiance of the glory of God, we are driven to our knees in worship, right and true worship. That's the only basis. It's not being swept up with the crowd. It's not hoping Jesus is going to do some stuff. It's not being able to sing pretty songs. It's not having the right posture. It is eyes which have beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and falling down to your knees and recognizing apart from you and your perfect work, I would be your enemy. Apart from you choosing me and calling me out of darkness, when that day comes that you ride in on that war horse, that's what David read about. When that day comes that you ride in on your war horse, swinging your sword, fire in your eyes, your robe dipped in the blood, you pressing down the wrath Pressing down the wine press of the fury of your wrath, you must know that on that day you would all, every last one of you, be destroyed. They had no clue. They had no clue that this was all what Jesus had been pointing towards. And so they cried out like a bunch of stupid children these songs, and they didn't know what they were singing, yet they said all the right words in the right way with the right posture. Sounds a lot like the rich young ruler. Worshipping Jesus just as God had appointed them to do, but having no idea. And yet Jesus Christ, knowing all the rejection that lay ahead, as he rode in, this wasn't a celebration for Jesus. He knew with great sorrow what lay ahead. He knew the torment of this week that was ahead of him, and yet he continued to ride on. I imagine that he, he heard these things, and we know, as a matter of fact, we know that it broke his heart because Luke tells us that as he drew near and Jesus lifts up his eyes and he beheld the city that was before him, we know that he wept. Jesus cried for the very same people that were going to be demanding his life just days later. The very same people that cried out songs of praise to him today, they would be crying out, crucify him days later. For their sake, Jesus wept. We read this. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. They had no clue. These people like, golly, is it really that time? fast-forward these people had no clue that the visitation, the time of peace had come upon them, the city of peace, they had no idea that the Prince of Peace was coming to them, that the glory of God was returning, just as God had prophesied. They had no idea the one who had visited them, and so as a result of this, they would be destroyed. And yet you must see this. Even as God is sovereignly controlling all things, even as all things are playing out, exactly as he has preordained they would happen, this does not preclude him from being sorrowful. God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. Jesus Christ, the one that had come to set these people free, Jesus Christ, the one that came to offer peace to them. He wept over them because he knew that their destruction was near. You must understand this, that God's sovereignty does not preclude him from sorrow at the death of the wicked. He stood over this nation knowing you will be destroyed. You will reject because I have hardened you. This will all play out exactly as God has ordained. We praise him because of this. We know that it's because of this that Jesus Christ's life was taken. We know that he laid down his life. We know that because of this, when Jesus Christ was resurrected, the gospel was made available to us, the Gentiles. This gospel would have never reached us had God not done this thing. And yet, Jesus Christ wept on that day. And then we see as he rides in, it is late, everyone else abandons him. Kind of an anticlimactic end to this entire story as Jesus Christ rides in and the crowds are gone. We don't know where they went. Did they get scared? Did they get sleepy? Did they get tired? We don't know. We know that they pulled away. Jesus Christ enters into his temple, and he surveys the place, and he looks around. We know what's going to happen. He does not like what he sees. And yet Jesus Christ comes in, the glory of God, returning to the temple of God exactly as God had said, and yet they did not recognize it. They did not understand it. They did not see it because it was not what they had expected. And yet Jesus Christ, the Son of God, full of the glory of God, walked into this place. He looked around. He stood all alone. After weeping over these people that would be destroyed because of their rejection of him, he walked into that place, surveyed, turned around, and went right back where he came from. The glory of God exiting the temple of God out of the eastern gate, right back over the Mount of Olives and right down to Bethany. But he would be back. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for this magnificent week that lays before us. We thank you for, that all, for all that Jesus Christ endured on our behalf. We thank you for the promise, not only of his atoning death, but his powerful resurrection. We thank you, Father, that you have, in fact, given us spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear, that we may see... And know the glory of God. That we may know your glory and see it in the face of your son Jesus Christ. That we may not be children just singing empty songs. We may not be fools just throwing ourselves down on the ground. That we may be true believers, true worshipers, true followers of Jesus Christ. We seek therefore, Father, to glorify you now. To sing songs of praise to you, our Father, our King, the God of the universe. So we pray that the words we sing, the meditations of our heart, they would be pleasing to you. We pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.